I noticed you guys turned off my walk-up song, but it's okay. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Desert City Church. My name is Jacob Wong, and I have the amazing privilege of being the youth pastor around here. My wife, Bella, thank you. My wife, Bella, and I have been coming to Desert City for about two and a half years now, and I just can't imagine life without our community here. Uh, we just had a baby about two months ago. Here's some pictures. This first one is him being really awesome with my wife, Bella. The second one this is us hanging out. You know, he's my bro. And then the third one is him during my sermon preparation yesterday, um, having a meltdown. So if my sermon is bad for some reason, it's definitely his fault. Um, <laughs> you can take that down. Since New Year's Eve, since it's New Year's Eve, I thought it'd be appropriate to use the gospel as a way for us to reflect on the past year of 2023 and look forward to turning the corner in 2024. Uh, to begin, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a story. There once was a boy named Ed. And Ed found himself in a strange, wintry world with his siblings. When he was exploring this new realm, he came across a curious woman who claimed to be the ruler of the land. She gave him a special food that was everything he ever wanted, so he gave his allegiance to her to make sure he could get more of it. But soon, he found himself enslaved to this woman. And when he was, af he was afraid, when he heard the true name of the true king who was coming into the land from his siblings, he decided to betray his siblings and warn the woman of the true king's coming arrival. But instead of rewarding him, the lady, she decided to, that she was going to kidnap Ed and planned to kill him and his siblings on a stone table. The true king, however, stopped the plot from happening, but the woman argued that since Ed betrayed the true king, that he deserved to die. The king agreed, but he hashed out a deal with the woman, and that night, the true king was tied to the table and was killed in place of Ed and all seemed to be lost. But the next day came, and the stone table was cracked, and the true king had risen from the dead. And not only did the true king rise from the dead, he found Ed and, only, and not only forgave him, but he exalted him to the title of knight in his kingdom. The children and the king later defeated the woman and her army, and all was well again in this strange wintry world. If you couldn't tell, this is the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, a classic Christmas time read for me by C.S. Lewis. And it's also this creative portrait of the gospel, which Paul gives us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Edmund betrays the true king. The true king rescues and dies for Edmund. And then the true king rises from the dead and exalts the traitor Edmund to the place of royalty in his kingdom. Similarly, today, Paul will tell us the progression of one who we are without Christ, two, who God makes us in Christ, and three, who God creates us to be in Christ. First off, let me pray. Lord, we were all dead in our transgressions and sins. We were far from you. And God, I pray that the truth of the gospel today, that, Lord, it is all by grace that we have been saved. God, that that, would, that message would just ring true in our hearts. Be with me now as I preach your words. Amen. First, who we are without Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul is going to say four things here about who we were without Christ. He's going to say that we were dead in our transgressions. He's going to say that we followed the course of this world. He's going to say that we followed the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. And he's also going to say that we followed the desires of our flesh, because they were slaves and an insignificant people. God would remind them of their past so that they could remember his grace. And the Ephesians had markedly different lives as unbelieving Gentiles. And it's so different than Paul, the author of this letter, who is this zealot Jew who was actually persecuting the church because he was so aggressively Jewish that he like, hated Christians so much. He was, they were so different from him. And they were visibly dead in their, their transgressions and sins. And this phrase, transgressions and sins, is a way to speak of every sort of sin that a person may commit. And furthermore, to be dead in their transgressions and sins is in reference to the relationship with the divine. It is the opposite of being alive in Christ, and lays the groundwork for God to raise them from the dead through Christ. And in these trespasses and sins, they once walked, Paul says in verse 2a, that they walked in them means that it wasn't just a one-time thing. It wasn't just a one-time accident, like, oh, I messed up a couple times and God's angry at me now. No, that's not what happened. What happened is that they lived in this entire lifestyle mired in sin, and those culturally conditioned, they were still making voluntary and conscious decisions to be submitted to the influence of evil in the world. And it made them children of wrath, people who are worthy only of God's just punishment and justice. Second, these Gentile believers and us too were indifferentiable from the world. Walking in these trespasses and sins made them look exactly like the rest of the world around them. The Gentile unbelievers followed the course of the world, is what Paul says. They took the wide path that leads to death. This world, or the present age, as some, Paul sometimes calls it, in Paul's Jewish framework, is this evil system where, that has been co-opted by evil forces in rebellion against Yahweh's, God's good creation, good rule over creation. If we look back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2, and further past that, the family of Israel was chosen out of this rebellious world to restore God's rule and reign back to creation. Her laws, her priests, her prophets and kings were all intended for the purpose of distinguishing her from the nations around her, that she would be set apart, that she would be different, that she'd be a city set on a hill and a light to the Gentiles. The highs and the lows of this nation's stories hinged on her distinctness or similarity to the world. And then fast forward after centuries of exile and foreign occupation, for the devout first century Jew, assimilating with the world was akin to treachery. How can you be God's special people if you look like everyone else? How can you do that and make yourself like the oppressors who are ruling over us? And the recipients of this over unredeemed humanity, he's called the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Assimilating with the world is submitting to his will. And allowing themselves to blindly follow the ways of the world the Ephesians gave their allegiance to unseen and evil spiritual forces and therefore made themselves enemies of God. Fourth thing, we gave in and they gave in to the flesh. The enemy, Satan's greatest joy, it is, is to destroy the image of God in people. 
He does this by making them like the creatures that they were made to rule over. He causes people to lose their agency as humans made in God's image and instead live in the passions of their flesh, is what Paul says. What this phrase means, the passions of our flesh, is to let the body and its cravings have reign over the self, to live like an animal whose only concerns are sex, food, and security. And these desires of the body and mind, they're not bad in themselves, but when they're disordered over the higher desires through beauty, friendship, and the divine, they become terrible slave masters that drive us to make every decision out of our own self-interest. And we were no better off than they were. In verse three, Paul begins using first-person pronouns, signifying that the spiritual death that he is describing not only plagued the Gentiles, but faithful, devout Jews himself as well. As he says in the book of Romans, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us here were dead in our transgressions and sins. All of us have been complicit in the evil systems of the world. All of us have been influenced by the devil. And all of us have, been, have given in to the cravings of our flesh. I want to take a moment to reflect on these two questions, just in silence for about 30 seconds. How have you sinned this year? How have you given into the world, the flesh, and the devil? But the story continues. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Despite our failures, church, God saves us still. We are made alive together with Christ because God is rich in mercy. And this is a reference to God's self-description in the Old Testament. Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, Yahweh shows mercy to a thousand generations. And not only is he merciful, God is loving. Not just somebody who forgives and forgets, but a God who actively engages with people who have spent their entire lives rejecting him. God does this to people who are currently dead to him, who have no real relationship with him. The people who are farthest from him, he makes them alive in Christ. God takes people who are utterly lost and brings them home to him. One time I was uh, mountain biking with my friend Scott out at Brown's Ranch in North Scottsdale. I don't know if there's any mountain bikers here. You guys know where that is. It's like Pima and Dynamite. It's pretty sick. Um, but first thing, you need to know a couple things about me and Scott before I tell the rest of the story. First thing, my friend Scott is an Eagle Scout, and he should be very prepared for outdoor situations. The second, Scott doesn't have a great sense of direction at times. Third, Scott has T-Mobile. Fourth, <laughs> Jacob likes to ride fast and gets impatient stopping. That's me. Jacob can also get lost in the moment and forget about the people he's with. My wife found that really funny last night. Um, 
Me and Scott began our adventure. We're doing this night ride at Brown's Ranch, which, like, technically, guys, so you know, you're technically not allowed to do that in the McDowell Sonoran Preserve because it closes at, like, 4 p.m. every day because it's stupid, but it's fine. But it, it was so it's technically not legal, so don't do this at home, kids. Uh, and we were high school, so it's fine. Um, and we were having a blast of time riding in the dark, going around corners. You can see anything except, like, the saguaro and the bush in front of you, and then you see another saguaro and bush, and then another saguaro and bush because, like, that's all there is in the desert. Um, and we're going around corners, and you're like, you can't really see anything, but you have these like two little tiny bike lights that are illuminating everything for you. And uh, oh, so, so I'm like having the time of my life. I'm having an absolute blast. And then at some point, probably like 20 minutes into the ride, I notice that Scott isn't riding with me anymore. And I haven't seen or heard him in a while. And I begin to get worried, and so I, I'm like waiting for him for like five minutes. I'm like, okay, I should go look for him. And I retrace my path little by little by little till I end up all the way back at the trailhead. And meanwhile, what had happened is Scott's lights had died because this Eagle Scout didn't remember to charge his bike lights. And not only that, but his phone didn't have any cell service at Brown's Ranch because, you know, T-Mobile. And uh, so Scott began wandering around in the dark with no real chance of finding his way back before morning came as the trails at Brown's Ranch are quite serendipitous and not really straightforward, like you're like, I want to go north, and then you like go the trail that's facing north, and you like end up going south. It's really confusing out there. And so Scott, he's utterly lost with no way out. He needs someone to rescue him. But then, out of nowhere, this is a crazy story. Out of nowhere, a truly mysterious man came riding by Scotty, and he has no lights on his bike. He's just riding in the pitch black dark, but he's like finding his way fine. And he's wearing jeans while he's riding a mountain bike, which if like you mountain bike, you like, that's like, that's weird if you're like wearing jeans while you're mountain biking. And he asked Scott what was going on, and he guided Scott through the utter darkness all the way back to the trailhead. And we promptly went home. And so he, he made it, he's alive today, and we've gotten lost on other bike rides together before too. And, uh, but I had to make fun of him for not charging his lights and having T-Mobile, because that was annoying. Uh, but anyways, just like that stranger saved Scott in the darkest night with no hope on his own, God makes us alive even while we are dead in our transgressions. And God doesn't just make us alive. He makes us alive through our relationship and union with Christ. You can put the text back up on the screen. Paul says that God makes union with Christ. And this union gives us access to the resurrection life that Jesus won for us on the cross. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus cancels our debts so that we can experience the life that is truly life. And look, Paul's not saying here that God merely wipes our debts clean, although he does do that. He doesn't just forgive our sins, though he does do that. Paul's gospel is so much bigger than that if you honestly read the New Testament and the book of Ephesians in particular. Paul's gospel is about our enthronement and exaltation to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God isn't just a West Coast millennial like some of you guys. Ephesians 2.4 does not read, and the dude God said, no biggie, and just forgave you. This isn't just a gospel of sin management, as if our only problem was that God was mad at us. According to Ephesians 2.1-3, our problem was that we were dead, that we followed the course of the world, and that we were united with Satan. But God contradicts our failures and treason by giving us a new life, a new status, and a new position through our union with Christ. We're going to pause and reflect on these two questions before we continue. How do you long for God's transformation this year? 
How do you long for union with Christ this year? We'll continue in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now this radical salvation can only be accomplished by God. Just like Scott lost in the dark, we too were lost in our sin and needed someone to come and rescue us out of our plight. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. Salvation and union are God's gift to us. We did not and cannot accomplish this ourselves. Yet in our culture of technique and hustle, it's really hard to comprehend how we can be the recipients of benefits that we didn't earn or even ask for. Work and accomplishments, if we're honest, have become idols to us. We find our identity from what we do, not what is done for us on the cross. Just think about the disdain we have for somebody who lives solely off of welfare or trust funds. Think about the feeling of anxiety we experience when we don't check our email on our day off. Think about that feeling of awkwardness when someone does something genuinely kind to you and you have no way of repaying them. I'd like to think of myself as like a really good driver. Uh, I drive the youth kids around, so I am a really good driver, trust me. Um, I've never gotten a speeding ticket, I've never been cited in an accident report, and I've only been pulled over once, and it's because Tyson was standing out of my moonroof, and we were like driving in the, through the Grand Canyon National Park, and the park ranger was like, don't do that, and then he like let us go away. So it wasn't actual, it wasn't really getting pulled over. It's like the guy hugs trees for a living, like that's not a real ticket. Um, but one time, when I was working at a rock climbing gym in North Scottsdale, I, I, was, I had a RAV4 at the time, and the, this RAV4 had a nice back, it, was, it had a backup camera, which was like newer for the time. And, uh, the, but the backup camera was one of like the ones on, like the, on the rear view mirror. Have you guys, you guys have seen those before? And it's like, it like pops up in the mirror and then it like goes away. And, but it's like the size of a Game Boy screen. Like it's like literally like two by two inches. And I, I also had a bike rack on, so like that further obstructs my backup camera. And I'm backing up and I'm like, Okay, like, let's just go for it. And I don't see anything in that rearview mirror, because of course you can't see anything ever. And boom, like, crap, okay, I hit somebody. And I looked in my rearview mirror, and of course there's a car there. And I'm like, oh, dang it, I like, hit somebody. My parents are gonna be so mad at me. And I, I get out of the car, and the other guy gets out of the car. And it's this regular member of the climbing gym who I had gotten to know over the past couple months. And I'm pretty sure he was Mormon, because he was like super nice and like super kind, and he always wore polos. Um, <laughs> But, and uh, I, I looked at the damage, and, and it was substantial enough for him to file an insurance claim on me. I, like, pretty, I dented his bumper pretty bad. But I, I had like, my insurance card ready to go, and instead of taking my insurance card, he says, Jacob, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And I was like, uh, okay. And I felt so awkward. I'm like, I, I almost wish he'd just given me the full punishment of, the, the, of my actions, because now I felt indebted to him. It's like, please, just can, can you be angry at me, please? Like, I, I want you to be angry at me so I don't feel as bad. 
And, and grace and gifts, guys, they feel awkward. And we import this attitude into our relationship with God. And, 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 and I think it comes out in two ways. In the first way, we are working out of a God debt. We owe it to God to do these things, or else the great debt collector, Jesus probably, or maybe the Pope, if you're Catholic, um, will punish us one day. We serve because we think God requires it. We give because we feel guilty about having so much. We go to church because we think that God's going to forget about us if we don't. And the other way it comes out is that we are working God into a debt, and this is more dangerous. We give so God will make us rich. We serve so God will make us feel fulfilled. We go to church every week to earn some extra credit to give us a little bit of wiggle room for when we do sin. And we become pastors. We might even do this. We might even become pastors with small houses in Phoenix so God will give us bigger houses in heaven. And the hard thing is that these misconceptions about God have seeds of truth in them. God does require our obedience of us. And God does reward us on some level for doing good. But basing your relationship on God based off reward and obedience is no way to go. It's going to result in a dry prayer life, a bitter attitude towards suffering, and you're going to be angry with people who don't operate out of the same works-motivated mindset that you do. Instead, you can put the verse back up, God invites us to remember his role as the sovereign creator and giver of everything. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. We are being created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, God is the primary agent behind the good that we do. This means that we ought to work hard, but acknowledge that everything good that we do, guys, is empowered by our union with Christ. As Dallas Willard once famously said, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Earning is an attitude, effort is action. In the evangelical and especially Reformed traditions of the church, the phrase good works has come to have an extremely negative connotation. It's nearly akin to saying self-righteous, pharisaical actions. But Paul doesn't share the same disdain for good works. He literally says right here that they are the purpose of our new creation in Christ, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. God wants us to be connected to the vine of Christ, to enjoy our union with him, and to actively do good works because we know that it is actually God working through us whenever we do anything good. Since it is so obvious that God is the one who saved us from sin, it should also be obvious to us that he is the one who empowers us to do good works. We can't get stuck, church, in the mindset that imagines God zeroing out our balance and then leaving us on our own for the rest. Like, good luck. I forgive you your sins. You're on your own now. We consume grace not merely when we sin, but when we do good. Because Christ is overall and in all and through all and for all that we do. Our good works come from our union with Christ. And in the same way that we walked in our sins and transgressions, Paul now closes with the exhortation to walk in them. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. And what are these good works? Paul tells us in chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Look carefully, therefore, at how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, which is what we're about to do. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. God saved us from darkness. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Walk, therefore, desert city, in the light, knowing that your good works don't qualify you or earn your fellowship with him, but they rather come out of a blessed union we enjoy with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to have two more reflection questions before we continue our time. How have you been motivated by unhealthy guilt? How have you tried to put God in your debt? What good works has God prepared for you this year? We're going to continue our time with communion. And communion is this beautiful thing where we get to nourish ourselves on the body and blood of Christ and thus enjoy our union with him with visible elements. Communion reminds us also of the gospel story where Christ's body and blood atone for our sins and transgressions so we can be made alive together with Christ. Today we'll be taking intention communion and we when we receive the elements in our hands like this, we are reminded that God's salvation is a gift to us, not something that we take for ourselves, but something we receive by grace and is not our own doing. We invite all followers of Jesus to the front. We're gonna have two stations up here and a gluten-free station in the back. We invite all followers of Jesus up for communion. And if you feel like you're dead in your transgressions and sins, you think that God wants nothing to do with you because of what you've done, that's not true. And I invite you to come talk with one of us and pray with us afterwards to receive the free gift of salvation. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for rescuing us out of darkness, even while we were dead in our transgressions. Thank you 
for the eternal life we get to experience here and now in you. Teach us not to dwell on the failures of the past, but to look forward to who we are now in you and the good works that you have prepared for us since eternity past. And may all the glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.